Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Law. I'm Jim Vonderheit. Writing about the law overwhelmingly focuses on the behavior of judges, the intentions of legislators, and the goals and options of the parties to a case. It would be easy to spend years and years studying law without reading a word about the democratic heart of the American legal system, those who make the actual decisions at the culmination of a case, the jury. Mistrust of juries is laced through the writings of 20th century scholars and judges, just as mistrust of the electorate was laced through the political thought of the 18th century. At first, you might think that David Ball and Don Keenan's trial manual, Reptile, can only heighten mistrust of the jury system. The book argues that attorneys should focus on primal instincts, reptilian instincts that underlie a juror's conscious thought processes. And it teaches attorneys the basics of how to activate the reptile within every juror so that plaintiffs can win more and larger verdicts. The book is, indeed, practical and results-oriented. Far from being a cynical document, however, reptile is at heart an affirmation of the democratic principles that, for better and for worse, underlie the American experiment. In a democracy, there's value in being smart and value in being empathic. But as the reptile says in one part of the book, I am not smart. I invented smart to make you do what I want. The reptile says, I have no feelings. I invented feelings to make you do what I want. And what the reptile wants is the long-term best interests, the survival of the community as a whole. Safety comes first. Does this mean logic takes a back seat? Perhaps. But the creator that endowed us with logic, Ball and Keenan point out, first gave us the greater gift of survival and entrusted that gift to the most trustworthy part of the brain, the reptile. Joining me today is one of the authors of Reptile, David Ball, an engineer by training, formerly a professional theater director, and now a trial consultant leading what the subtitle of this book calls A Plaintiff's Revolution. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Mr. David Ball is with us here on New Books in Law. Uh, to talk about his book, co-authored with Don Keenan, Reptile. And Mr. Ball, thanks for being with us. Sure, my pleasure. Um, I thought I'd ask you first, just for a capsule description, uh, what is the reptile? And reptile how does it deals with the um, primary decision-making part of the brain when it comes to uh, the, the, the brain's most important concern, which is survival, safety, making choices that are slightly better rather than slightly worse for the survival of the organism. Uh, It's called reptile. It's named after the part of the brain that's referred to as the reptilian brain, which is the most primitive part of the brain and, of course, drove the development of all the rest of the brain to help it survive and to help the offspring survive. And uh, that's the fundamental part of the brain that directs the rest of the brain in uh, in making its decisions. And you and, and Mr. Keenan apply that uh, insight to jurors in particular? Yes, uh, several of us uh, uh, 
did a, a good long um, couple of years worth of long-term research all over the country with with these concepts. It's, it's based on, on much of what they're doing in the new, relatively new science of neurosciences. And how do we apply that? Can we apply that? Can we make it work here? We knew it had worked uh, perfectly uh, in politics and in marketing. We were a little leery about whether it would work for us because we politics and marketing don't need to persuade 75% to 100% of the target group. We do. That's called a jury. Mm. So that's what our testing was about, to see if we could make it work and then to see where we could expand its uses. And uh, <laughs> I was very skeptical about it. Uh, I'm sort of a... The, the science nerd in the group, and, and I did nothing but continue to try to disprove it, which is, of course, a fundamental tool of any kind of good science, and couldn't disprove it. It keeps working, and uh, so we've learned how to apply that to virtually everything that has to do with the process of litigation, starting with uh, probably before case selection, going all the way through to the last word of the last appeal, although we really... Uh, uh, we focus our attention mostly on, on trials, uh, depositions, discovery, uh, mediation, that sort of thing. Right, and the book is, is really a, a terrific how-to guide in terms of reaching jurors. Yeah, it, it, it explains a little of the science so people know what they're doing. It's not a bag of tricks. One lawyer has described it not so much as a, that it's not at all a bag of tricks, that it really is a whole culture. It's a way of thinking about yourself and your cases and your jury that's, uh, on the one hand, very different from what lawyers have been doing, and on the other hand, is a return to exactly why jury trials were invented in the first place, which is for the safety of the community. Uh, people say, oh, we're just trying to scare jurors. No, we're not trying to scare jurors at all. We're trying to empower them to, to, to make themselves and their world safer. And that's exactly what, what this does. And as a result, uh, uh, people who learn how to use the reptile and, and master it and go beyond the book, because there's a lot that we don't put in the book, because we don't want to make that common knowledge to the other side, um, although I don't really care because they can't do anything about it, but um, doesn't like to help the other side any more than necessary. Um, uh, people win cases, they have the cases they've never won before, and verdicts that used to be whatever they were are now 5, 10, and 15 times. I don't know, be that small cases, huge cases, injury cases. It works on virtually every civil case uh, in which you have the burden. Hmm. Uh, be that you know commercial litigation or, or employment cases or, or, or personal injury or wrongful death cases, it works wherever the jurors are called upon to make a decision um, about a case and where we have the burden. Uh, if you apply the reptile fully, which takes some time to master, it's not just a matter of sitting back and reading a book and saying, "Oh, I can do it now." It's it's uh, it's a process. It's not just a few tricks that kind of usually learn in CLEs. Uh, so we have a whole series of, of seminars and workshops and ways that people can go beyond just reading the book in order to in order to master this stuff. And when they do, they win. They do very well. And we rarely, rarely hear of a loss or a bad outcome. The well, only to... the only real defense that uh, the defense has to the book is procedural. You know, judge, he shouldn't be allowed to do that. And uh, so 
so sometimes we have to figure out a slightly different way to do the same thing, but we always can, because there's nothing unethical or wrong or improper about anything that we're doing. And by way of background, I wonder if you could say something about how plaintiffs, the plaintiff's bar went wrong. What were plaintiff's attorneys doing for so many years well, it's different. not so much what the plaintiff's attorneys did. I mean, they were doing cases in the traditional old way that you learn in law school where you operate under the terrible fallacy that jurors make their decisions on a conscious, logical basis. One of the things we've learned from the neurosciences is, and it's a startling fact, but it is absolutely true, and lawyers hate it, I hate it, anybody with a logical mind hates it, but this <laughs> is absolutely true, and it's the fact that by the time you think about how to make a decision, by the time that gets to your conscious brain, the decision has already been made by the rest of your brain, and it's pretty much incontrovertible, unless it's utterly illogical. Remarkable. The conscious brain runs it through a final, hey, is this logical filter? And if it is, and of course every issue in every jury trial can be decided logically either way, or it doesn't get in front of a jury. <clears throat> um, so it's it's that they were doing things the the American law school way, which is, here's the law, here's the words to use, now go out and do that, and let's hope that jurors act like computers instead of, instead of human beings. The real problem was the onslaught of, 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 of uh, uh, probably the biggest poisoning of the jury pool, not probably, definitely the biggest poisoning of the jury pool in history, uh, which was the tort reform movement that convinced jurors that they themselves were in danger and were being disadvantaged, disadvantaged in important ways by jury verdicts that called for somebody to pay money. It's, it's the big, huge, you know, jurors believe all the doctors are leaving the state and that jury uh, verdicts are driving insurance rates up. And, and, and I mean, this stuff is just open nonsense. But the plaintiffs' organizations and the individual attorneys did nothing to respond to the attacks when they started 20 years ago, so they rapidly became part of the American belief system. Uh, and as a result, plaintiffs no longer have a, a fair playing field when they walk into the, into the courtroom, because the, about 40, 30 to 40% of the jurors in any given venue feel that a verdict for money somehow hurts the juror himself personally. Again, taking right. doctors away, you know, whatever it is, raising insurance, even small cases, big cases made no difference. And as a result, they came to, to, to have a real bias against deciding uh, in the plaintiff's favor. And that largely was created by using these same reptilian methods. And fortunately, we use them better than the other side could, or we use them in ways that completely trump what the tort reform uh, forces have done. So the jurors who have been the most tort reformed, who come in the 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 the, uh, the kind of jurors we used to try very hard to get off the jury, we now really want on the jury because they turn out to be our best jurors. So their um, their awareness of the the general threat of lawsuits. Something you can co-opt. Compl yeah. Completely trumped. Now, that doesn't mean they walk out and decide that lawsuits are okay. But the particular lawsuit that they're sitting on, all we do is show them that it, 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 it has a great deal to do with them. It's not about other people. Hmm. And uh, that it's about their community. 
uh, there's a famous Cicero quote, the first law is the safety of the people. And that's the fundamental driving principle behind all tort law. Uh, In every state in America, there's a case that says, uh, in every venue in America, there's at least one case that says part of the purpose of tort law is safety, community safety, community well-being. And that's why the Greeks started the trials in the first place, jury trials in the first place back in ancient Athens. So it's very much part of, I mean, why would we go to all this trouble of having juries? It is to protect people. It is to protect the well-being of the community. And what we've done is simply adapt how the brain works to how the, how the uh, trial works. It's really very simple. If you have to persuade people, what is it that motivates them to want to decide your way? That's the key to this whole thing. What motivates them to decide your way? Not what logic will decide them your way, because there's always logic on both sides. It's it's not a battle of logic. Nothing is. Politics is not. Religion is not. No no important issues are battles of logic, because you can have good-hearted, good-faith, decent, well-meaning people on opposite sides who both think they're logical, and they both are. Uh almost all the time. So what we need to do is motivate people to want to decide the logic in the, in the plaintiff's favor, and that's what the reptile does. You spoke about um, the fact that you wish logic, or you, you, some part of you wants logic to be more dominant than it actually is. Well, not and, more because dominant, you're a scientist. We're just, sorry? Because you're a scientist, right? Uh, you've got uh, a scientific of bent. Of sort. I'm right? more of an amateur scientist. And your background before that also was in theater, so I wonder if, if that flows in as well to your thinking. Well, my initial background things. actually was in, in science, okay. uh, science and engineering for a long time. Um, the connection to theater has to do with what do you do when there's a group of people that you need to communicate with who are not communicating back with you. It's not like a conversation. It's a very different form, and that's where the overlap is between my theater profession and this work. Uh, but the the concept of logic is something we're brought up to be very proud of. Mm. You know, we feel like that's what separates us from from the rest of the animals, and in, and indeed it does. Uh, and we like to think that we are in control, in conscious control of our decisions. Uh, nobody likes to think you know everything we do is subconscious, and and we're not in control of the decisions we make. And that's one of the areas where the neurosciences are revolutionizing not just how people make decisions, but legal responsibility, for example, is a huge issue that the neurosciences have have brought brought up, and it's going to be a huge issue coming into the future. If if we're not making our, our decisions, not just in juries, but in life, if we don't make decisions consciously, um, are we really responsible for them? For example, if a person has a brain tumor, a pro, let, let's take a person who's a perfectly normal person who's never done a bad thing in his life. He's a good human being. He's exactly what you want a good person to be. And then, sadly, he develops a brain tumor, which affects seriously affects a person's behavior. Uh, and the brain tumor, while he has the brain tumor, he goes out and murders somebody. 
which happens. This is not a made-up example. And then, lo and behold, a miracle, he goes into surgery and they remove the brain tumor. Now, do you put him in jail for the murder? Well, of course you do. He murdered somebody. But <laughs> where's the responsibility there? He never would have done it except for the fact that he had a disease in his brain, a physical one, not some soft psychological thing, but a hard, physical, real one that altered uh, the kind of human being he was in a way that it would alter any human being. Uh, where's the responsibility? So it's a huge issue for the future. By the way, if you're interested, there's a, the, the go-to book on that topic is a book called Incognito by David Eagleman. And while it is not about directly about legal matters, Mr. Eagleman runs uh, a clinic, I think, at Baylor University on legal responsibility, and the book discusses that quite a bit, so it might be a good book for you guys to look at uh, and possibly review. But what we're doing with it is not so much about, it is about responsibility because we're trying to hold uh, uh, civil defendants responsible for what they do. Um, but our primary goal is how do we use how the brain really works, not not how we think it works, not how theories say it works, but, but what we know from this new science of neuroscience about how the brain actually does work uh, in order to help us get jurors to make the decisions we need them to make. There's nothing magical or mystical or tricky or, or subliminal about any of it. It's, it's very above board. Jurors are not tricked in any way. It is not an appeal to emotions even slightly. Uh, that's not how it works at all, although those are the things that people who don't really understand it, uh, you know, they hear about it and they'll say, oh, you shouldn't ought to do that. But once they learn about it, they come on board because they see it's not any of those things. It's, it's a very honest, forthright approach to how to present your uh, arguments and facts in trial. And a lot of the principles have been used, have been harnessed in criminal settings for a long time, I imagine, that prosecutors speak in this way about the community sending a well, message. Well, they're not really, criminal. by and large, they're not really allowed to, but it's implicit. Okay. You know, when when there's a, what we've done is we've made criminal, uh, we, we've made somehow along the way, when people violate safety rules and hurt us, we regard that as less serious than when criminals violate criminal laws and hurt us. Well, the dead guy is still dead, the arm is still broken, the brain is still damaged, so really what's the difference? There are clear rules that guide civil behavior. Uh, there are clear laws that guide criminal, non-criminal behavior, and we should, we should deal with them the same way, but we don't. And so what we're doing is showing jurors that they are indeed the same things. If there's a rule you shouldn't violate and you violate it and you hurt me, uh, why is that less serious than if, than if you do a crime? And the law leaves that up to juries to fix. With prosecutors in a violent crime setting, much of the reptilian job is already done. Mm. Uh, with medical negligence or with highway negligence or, or you know, employment discrimination or, or whatever, uh, we have to do that job. We have to bridge a gap that isn't there. Uh, and also there's been no tort reform movement in crime. Uh, there has been this huge tort reform movement in civil cases to, to minimize the harm that, that, that companies and people doing outrageously dangerous things have done to us.
so it's it's. Uh, I mean, for an example of tort reform, people have been taught that on account of lawsuits, people invent fewer things in America because they're afraid they'll get sued if the thing doesn't work. Well, that is an absolutely false statement. No inventor ever is going to say, I'm not going to invent this thing or, or make it or sell it, make money on it, uh, because somebody might sue me if it goes wrong. Because all he has to do is say, I will simply follow the rules about this. That is, I will make it as safe as can be. And if I make it as safe as can be, I, I, you know, I'm fine. I'm going to be okay, as long as I'm not putting something out there that's dangerous. Right. And so the criminal stuff already has that bridge to the reptile. Not enough, but it's there and it works. That's why so many people end up in jail, even who aren't guilty, because the jurors don't want to take any chances there. And what we're trying to do is harness that same power so that we, we, we outweigh the effects of tort reform. And as I say, there's no question that it works. We don't lose cases when the people, when the lawyer has mastered the reptile, uh, we we do, you know, amazingly well. I was really interested in in one example from the book, which uh, initially seems pretty straightforward. Um, but you talk about you just mentioned this the importance of the rules and the importance of the processes that an inventor or someone needs to follow. The gadget in heart surgery that worked well. 999,999 times, and yet... Actually, it worked well every time. Every time. And never failed. The only problem with that gadget was before it had ever been released publicly, it was out in a beta version, and some doctor, I forget, in Japan or someplace in the Far East, noticed that when he put it down on a table, it warmed up when it shouldn't have. And that, that never ever did that in a patient, but the doctor had sent a, a, a notice to the company, this thing heated up. Is there something wrong with it? Now, that was the whole entire legal basis for the case, an almost impossible case, especially with the clients that we had. Certainly which, it seems that way. Yeah, and and yet when you when you took it out of the realm of being you know, how many people do you have to kill or melt their hearts or whatever before you, if you can make it safer, you must make it safer. That's the law. That's the rule. And since the company knew it had this problem, sooner or later, this problem was going to happen not on a table, but in a patient's heart. And it was easily fixable. It was nothing more than a software fix that they knew how to make. Wow. But when the jury, when the jury stopped thinking about this is about some other person. This is rather about some rules that affect the safety of me and my kids right now, which right. is, of course, what it is. Uh, you don't lecture to them in those terms. You just pre you don't want to do that. Instead, you present the evidence to them in, a, in the way that they make those conclusions for themselves. You don't get involved in the technical intricacies of how the device works or what it was used for in medication or all the crap that so many lawyers fill their cases with that have nothing to do with anyone's decision-making. All the stuff they gather in discovery that they think they have to use in trial because it was so hard to gather in discovery, they can't let go of it. <laughs> I know as a consultant, and I work on cases all the time, our biggest job 
is to get the lawyers to let go of 95% of what they found in discovery, cut to the chase, find the things that are going to change the jurors' minds to make them go our way, and that's what you present in trial. Anything else opens the door to, lo to losing the case or doing badly. That's very a reptilian principle. In other words, get rid of everything except the stuff that's relevant is not something you're taught in law school. And relevance is defined by community safety, well, not no, by relevance the specifics. Is, relevance is described as that which goes to juror decision-making, okay, yep. not to general background, not to, well, hell, I spent you know a year and a half gathering this stuff in discovery. I had to suffer through it. Now I'm going to make the jurors suffer through it. Uh, relevance is clarity and simplicity. There's no such thing as a case too complicated for an average for a, a juror to understand. It's just that some cases are too complicated for lawyers to understand well enough to communicate clearly. Hmm. Uh, confusion uh, is, is, is confusion causes the complexity of the case. And it's the lawyer's confusion that makes it complex. So what we do is cut away so that, you know, in a consulting, so that they can see the stark raving clarity of what this is about. Somebody will tell me, oh, our case is going to take three and a half weeks to put on, and I shudder, because that triples their chances of losing if they're the plaintiff, because it means they're putting on a whole bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with juror decision-making. It has to do with issues connected to the case, but it does not have to do with the things the jurors are going to be dealing with when they make that decision or things that they're going to be discussing in the deliberation room. And the reptile demands that things be no more complicated than they have to be. That's an old rule from Einstein. Complexity should be no, nothing should be any more complex than it needs to be, and there's no such thing as a court trial that by the time it gets to a jury needs to be complex. A 14-year-old kid is able to understand everything in every case that you need to present to a jury. That's not to say jurors have the minds of 14-year-olds. It's simply saying that you can get the case that simple, and you should. And in the case of the of the hard gadget, the simple thing on the other side was million to one. It's it's never happened before. Yes, and that's that their easy, trumped. simple boil down. Right, but you boil down. And the down implicit and the thing that they couldn't talk about is why would you want to give any money to people who look like these people? Because they were Sikhs, is that right? Yeah, they they had turbans. Yeah. You know, and it was at a time when in America it still is true with a lot of people. It was at a time when everybody was scared of anyone with a turban. It was not very long after 9-11. I mean, it was a huge bias to deal with. Uh, the focus groups made it clear, we're not giving these people any money. They're just going to turn around and send it to Al-Qaeda, which, of course, is untrue. These were lovely, peaceful people, but it was also a very conservative place. And so, and those may or may not be, even when those are legitimate considerations, even, even you know, the, the, they, there they weren't, but people, they were real to the jurors. But even when there is something real that can disadvantage the jurors, we have to show that there's something more important that can disadvantage you if you let this kind of thing go without making the perpetrator meet his responsibility. Just like not putting a murderer in jail. Right, so it's not it's about... It's not just we get rid of the murderer and thereby protect ourselves, it's also... 
that other you know, people look to see what they can get away with in a society. And you can extrapolate from uh, almost any or maybe any kind of case then to yes. think about safety of the community and, and which verdict then is going to yeah, now it's not necessarily safety. just physical safety. I mean, in a commercial litigation case, you're talking about, you know, the, the, the strong, I mean, money is very tied up in survival. And when people violate rules that can take, you know, improperly hurt somebody's financial security, hmm. I'm not talking about great wealth, I'm talking about basic security so you can take care of your kids, that's reptilian. And the reptile would could, if it were framed right, see Bernie Madoff as a big threat if you, because money is... Absolutely. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. It's not that Bernie Madoff's going to hurt me, juror number three, because I never invested any money with him. It is that people who do what Madoff did must be made to meet their responsibility or you open the floodgates, as indeed they've been open in a lot of situations. I mean, for, for one example... There is a huge bias among many people against class action cases. And everybody lost $10 on a product because the product was cheating people. Uh, and so they, they get together, you know, 100,000 people or 150,000 people, and now, oh, the lawyers are going to get a big chunk and nobody gets more than $10. But it's also the only way we have of keeping people from cheating us. So how do you do that case so that people see the reptilian danger of what the company did. It's not about someone's $10. It's about a company's million dollars or $2 million that it literally stole out of the economy. And when, it, when you reframe it that way, oh, that's where the money's going, that it, 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 it turns around. We, we see lawyers all the time sort of trying to explain to jurors why class action cases are good and they're proper and all that. You can't. It's a bias. They're not going to change their minds about it just because some lawyer who's looking to get rich in front of them is explaining why a class action case is good. You need instead to go to the real decision maker, which is the reptilian part of the brain, where logic has nothing to do with anything. That's what the reptile is about. And in one sense, it's easy uh, However, the techniques to master it, to know what to do, to know how not to get in your own way with it, do take time and practice and guidance and all that. And that's something I've, I've uh, got a particular perspective on as a, a law student myself. My trial team is, is very excited about the interview today. Uh, I, I'm on the trial team at Cleveland Marshall College of Law. Cool. And we spend lots of hours uh, working on the, the, te the techniques, just how... And the, the amount of time and practice it takes to, to apply something, however simple it is, yeah. is something we're, well, uh, we're very there's aware a of. Way, there's a reptilian method we have in criminal cases, uh, although usually the side that's on the defense does not have <coughs> the advantage of a reptile because the defense is not usually about public safety. Nonetheless, there is a reptilian way that we can assure ourselves that the jurors will actually demand the, uh, uh, that the prosecutor meet the burden of proof. Uh, I, I think it's a pretty widely acknowledged fact that <laughs> roughly half the people who are in jail, <coughs> excuse me, I think it's more than that, but I know it's no less than that, are there because their lawyer did not know how to explain beyond reasonable doubt. We went back to the old law school way, and that fails, because the jurors simply don't fully understand it. And even if they understand it, they're not motivated into doing it. 
and we have the same problem in civil cases with the burden of preponderance. Even once the jurors understand it, which they almost never do by the time they get to deliberations, even if you think you've explained it to them in the traditional law school ways, or even in some better ways than that, uh, jurors rarely really understand preponderance, and they certainly never want to do it. There are very few cases they decide by preponderance. So we developed a reptilian way that makes sure they understand it and that ensures that they'll follow it because these things go beyond logic and they go down to parts of the brain that are saying we are in charge here, not the top tiny part of the brain. It's under three or four percent of the brain, if that much, that's logical. I think my favorite quote is, you are no more aware of the workings of your subconscious brain than you are of your spleen. Mm. And yet that's the part of the brain that's making the decisions. And so we've simply had to learn how do we access it, how do we get there, how do we get it to decide our way. People have always done bits and pieces of this without realizing quite what they were doing. And the great lawyers always have done a good amount of it without quite realizing what was making it work. What we've done is allowed the great lawyers to be greater and allowed everybody else to, to, to get to that level where it took being one of the great lawyers to be 10 years, five years ago. And the subtitle of your book suggests that this makes possible a plaintiff's revolution. Well, there's no question about it. I mean, in the, what, three or so years that it's been out there, just the verdicts and settlements that we know of that the attorney uh, has directly attributed the primary credit to the reptile, not part of it, but said this was a reptilian win, and just the ones that we know about, which is you know by no means the majority of them, just that number of them, of all sizes of cases, mostly you know not the huge billion-dollar cases, but the personal, there were, were I think, 1.1 or 1.2 billion dollars in, in verdicts and settlements at this point on cases that without the reptile, you know, would be scraping, you know, a million, two million dollars, if that much, maybe, maybe 20 million, 30 million. But the total is, 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 is phenomenal. I mean, I don't think any of us developing this ever expected it, uh, to, to work on this level. Uh, you know, we were all hopeful that it would work, but the, the level that it's working, and part of it is, is we've got people like Don Keenan is absolutely brilliant at developing strategies based on how to use the reptile. I ain't too bad at it myself. Uh, my partner uh, uh, is a woman named Artemis Malikpour, uh, has, has, has sort of taken over it. Now, there's a lot of people out there who think they understand it, and they might someday, but they really don't because they, 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 you cannot master the reptile just from reading the book. You just can't. There's not enough in there. It just gives, that's just an introduction. Uh, but those who have followed up on it uh, are doing some pretty phenomenal innovation of, you know, virtually every few weeks we've got some great new way to do something or argue something or position something that uh, we test it, we see how it works, and we put it out there. And it's, it's, I was about to retire. I'm almost 70. I was about to quit. I had done what I needed to do and had the effect I wanted to have, and it certainly made enough money. <laughs> uh, I was about ready to go when, 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 when Keenan said, let's, let's look into this stuff. There might be something here. And I sort of reluctantly went along with it because you know, I wanted to be lazy for a while. 
And then as I saw what it was and I saw how it worked, and that took a period of a couple of fairly intensive years of research, mm-hmm. uh, I'm like a kid with a new toy. You can probably tell it from my tone of voice how you know excited I am by this. And that excitement comes not out of the potential of it anymore, but out of what I see it do. I mean, we get emails every day. You know, saying, "Here's what we did. Here's how it worked. Thank you. You've changed. You've changed my practice. You've changed my life." Sort of thing. Sort of like feel like I'm peddling snake oil every so often. Except the damn stuff works. And my goal, uh, other than to earn a living, was to make life better for all these clients that the you know these plaintiffs, that the insurance companies and the chambers of commerce and the tort reformers. Uh, uh, have been screwing them out of so that people get the care they need, they get the compensation they deserve, and fairness has been restored to the courtrooms. And that's pretty much my goal, and that's pretty much happening when people do this. It's, it's a, it is the use of the reptile in an utterly honest and real way as directly opposed to the dishonest, cynical way that uh, the, tort, the, the, the tort reformers, the chambers of commerce, the insurance companies, the large corporations uh, used it for. So it's, it's, it's a fun kind of revenge. Right. And attorneys all, you know, because we're teaching this stuff all over the country now, attorneys are really having fun. It's like rejuvenating a profession. It's been very exciting so far. I wonder if you could say more about the dishonesty. It's, it sounds like the, the reptile was used by tort reform to oh, focus absolutely. on the lawyers. Put well, the focus well, on the it's lawyers. not. It's not a focus on the lawyers. It's a focus. It's the making people believe that as a result of fair verdicts or any kind of. First of all, making people believe that we are infiltrated with with uh, uh, bogus cases, with frivolous cases. Mm-hmm. Well, if you ask a lawyer, can you name a single frivolous case? The most they can do, I'm talking about defense lawyers now, the most they can do is say, well, McDonald's. Well, in fact, if you look at the McDonald's case, there was nothing frivolous about it. Frivolous cases do not get in front of juries. Frivolous cases almost never get settled just so the complainant will go away. The whole myth of frivolous cases is a frivolous myth. However, because the idiots in the... I shouldn't say that. Because of the people on our side who assumed they were impervious to these attacks, never responded. By the time they finally got around to responding, the the myth of frivolous cases is settled in as a permanent truth. Well, frivolous cases, they said, then hurt us all because it takes money out of the economy, it makes the doctors all go away, it raises the insurance rates. In other words, it does things that is going to hurt your ability to take care of your children by hurting the economy, by taking away their health care. And they even attach this to some very important religious things that I don't have time to go into today, but I think it's mentioned in the book, and we certainly teach yes, it in the seminars. Yeah. Um, those are profound reptilian points, and they are all dishonest. There's nothing honest about saying that there's a connection between the size of verdicts and the amount that lawyers or other, that doctors, for example, are paying for their uh, liability insurance. There is simply no connection there. So it's dishonest to make people worry that if they give somebody the money that... that I've had jurors, I, I interview jurors all the time. One of the most common things you hear is things like, well, we knew this lady was hurt and we knew that the doctor or the truck driver or whoever had been negligent and hurt her, but we can't, we just can't, we have to stop doing this to ourselves. 
You know, too, that's too just how money. the cookie. Yeah. Any money. It's just, yeah. That's how the cookie crumbles. A bad thing happened to her. I feel sorry for her, but we can't afford any more to do this. And so they nullify the law. And on the basis of, uh, of these, 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 this terrible big lie that tort reform has spread and continues to, and, and it's getting worse. I mean, tort reform is, the, the, we ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, on the basis of that, uh, you know, there are states where no matter how badly someone is hurt, uh, say in medical negligence cases, if it's going to take $20 million to take care of this person for the rest of their lives, they're limited to getting under $2 million in compensation. And that comes out of a fear in the population that allows politicians to use this as a political thing. Let's go fight for tort reform legislation so all the people who are afraid now will vote for us. Uh, it's been utterly cynical and utterly dishonest top to bottom. And this is not to say every defense lawyer is a bad person. They're not. They're, they're people who have kind of been reduced to assembly line workers who frequently will say to me in private that, you know, they know what's fair in this case, but they have to do what the insurance company is paying them to do or they don't have a job, so they have to go out and fight to, to make sure they're going to use all the biases of tort reform to hurt us, and they do. Uh, not if we're using the reptile, then they're powerless against us. That's why the reptile's there. But the difference is, is that the use of the reptile by the insurance companies and, and the chambers of commerce and the big corporations and the multinational corporations that could care less about individuals or about the nation uh, has been cynical and dishonest, and all we're doing is showing people that the consequences of certain kinds of behavior lead to safety and survival issues that jurors now are empowered to do something about. In other words, a trial becomes a wonderful opportunity to do what trials were invented for, and that is to help keep their community safe for themselves and their children. You described some great research about that, that uh, about code and the fact that the word trial can be coded to go along with opportunity and injustice can be coded to go along with incompleteness. That, uh, yeah, injustice in itself is not a big... Yeah, there's, there's a, 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 a profound uh, uh, imbalance within the individual when they've committed or been, or been the victim of an injustice. Yeah. And that's there because... In, back in the day, back when we were evolving, back when we lived in the tribes in the in the wilderness or in the desert, uh, if I did something bad to you, if I came and stole your pork chop, um, if you didn't do something, if the other shoe didn't drop, if I didn't apologize and mean it, or if I wasn't punished, or if you didn't take revenge, then I'd just come steal another pork chop. And that means people who allowed that to happen were less likely to survive. And so their lineage was disadvantaged. And over, you know, enough generations of that uh, complacent characteristic, uh, that lineage died out because it was, in terms of evolution, it was disadvantaged. And it takes very small increments uh, over, you know, hundreds of generations uh, to create a, 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 an existential level uh, conclusion to your lineage, so that the only ones of us who are left are the ones who feel awful when an injustice to ourselves has not been balanced. 
and a great many people will even feel if they did the injustice, it has to be balanced. And, and in terms of evolution, that happened because if I stole your lamb chop and the other shoe never dropped, I'm in constant danger that you will take revenge. Stress there, yeah. And so sooner or later, something has to be done. That's why all the major religions have got Days of Atonement or, you know, Confession or whatever it is. So that, can you imagine being in a tribe of 500 people in the desert where there's all these incompletions floating around in that group? That's, the only, that's their entire world. They don't have television. Their whole world is that, their whole society is that group of 500 people. And yet there's all these, in, you know, human beings are human beings. We're going to be unjust to each other. And now you've got all those injustices floating around. That splits that tribe apart. So when push comes to shove, they can barely defend themselves. Those tribes were wiped out. Maybe that's what happened to the lost tribes of Israel. But to the tribes where, where the people happen to be genetically predisposed toward hating the feeling that I have done an injustice or I have been injusticed against, where they inherently hate that feeling, then they do something about it revenge or apology or in, in the case of a, you know, a group of civilization like ours, that's what trials do. And if you take trials out of it, then every time someone's murdered, you now have a back and forth Hatfield and McCoy series of revenges that can take over a community completely. The Oristaya. Sorry? That's the Oristaya, right? That's that the, is the, the Oristaya. And, and the Oristaya is the first major play in Western literature, uh, and it happens to be about the invention of the jury trial, and it happens to have been done by the same people who were trying to convince the public that, uh, hey, you know, t trials are safer for you to do. So in the, in the evolutionary history and also in the civilizational history, there are these vectors pointing toward the, the jury box. Yeah, there's uh, no question about it. it. Yeah. It, it is the, uh, the other thing that is wonderful and wonderfully reptilian is the jury is the last institution in America that cannot be bought by powerful forces. I mean, it can be in the rare occasion you'll read a book like, you know, the jury or somewhere that they talk about how the corporations come in and poison the jury and or buy them off or, or, or you know, get juror number three and threaten him. But by and large, 99.9% .9 of the jurors, no one can reach in and affect them. The chambers of commerce, the insurance companies, nobody else once they're in the box can do anything more to affect them. Tort reform has worked by pre-affecting them, by poisoning them in advance. Once we've undone that poison, which we haven't undone it, we just make it irrelevant to that trial, so it's not operative anymore. Uh, once we've done that, we get, a, at a minimum, a perfectly play, uh, fair playing field, because now once they're in that trial, it's too late for anybody to reach in and poison them. It's not like... The Senate, it's not like the House, it's not like our safety agencies in Congress, it's not like our state institutions and boards and departments of transportation and, and FDA. All those things are influenced by powerful money. Well, you can't do that with a jury. So one of the ways we empower people is by letting them see this is where the power in a country like ours finally lies, in the hands of these 12 people who have no interest in the world other than the well-being of their community. 
And that is something you tell the jury, too, to activate their uh You don't need to tell it to them. No, but you, importance you, you is don't, something. You don't want to be that explicit. You, you, okay. you know, you, if I point a gun at your face, I hardly need to say you're in danger. Right. And I hardly need to say you need to knock the gun away. But the jury's sense of their, their importance is something that is helpful on a reptilian level as well. Yes, we, we do empower them. We make them understand how important their job is, not to some stranger for some abstract thing called justice. Right but to themselves and their community for this very concrete thing called the well-being of you and your kids. And people say, well, how can that be true in a case just a little fender bender and somebody gets their neck hurt a little bit? It's absolutely true in those cases because the reptile is not about big danger or little danger. The reptile is digital. Something's either dangerous or it isn't. Mm. Something's either safer than something else or it isn't. It doesn't. The, 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 the increment of safety is not the issue. It's... It's, it's the thing itself. I wanted to ask if, if it's not giving too much away, whether you ha- would be willing to share an example in the commercial context of how well, sure. the reptile sure. activates their sure. if, protective uh, community. Some years ago, I was doing a case, not that long ago, three, four years ago, I was doing a case in which it was a Taft-Hartley uh, unfair competition or unfair, I forget the details of it. But I was uh, helping to, uh, I was working with the uh, economics expert who was going to explain the economic losses to our client, uh, to the jury. And I asked him if, you know, they had asked him, the defense had asked him how much he was going to get paid and what his hourly rate was and all that. So I asked him, this, by the way, is one of our most important uh, uh, techniques we use in trial. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I asked him what, if that money was the only reason he would testify in a case like this. And he said, well, the money's important, but no, there's other reasons. And I said, well, what are the other reasons? He said, well, you know, I'm an economist, and uh, I have graduate students, and, and this allows me to get myself and my graduate students involved in some real-world stuff. You know, and I said, oh, well, is that all? And he gave me several other reasons. And then I said to him, are there any moral or ethical reasons that drive you to testify in a case like this? And he launched into a this this little guy. Suddenly, it was like he grew three feet higher. <laughs> he almost scared me. He launched into this tirade about if we ignore things like unfair competition, here's what we will do to this country. Wow. Here's what we will do to the pocketbooks of everyone here. Here's what will and and by the time and you know this is. Taft-Hartley is a topic about which I could have cared less. By the time he was done, I was ready to go out and get my friends together and start marching around with Taft-Hartley signs. <laughs> this is it going back to the days of, of Teddy Roosevelt, antitrust, uh, trust yeah, busting. Yeah, but see, we don't feel that stuff anymore precisely right. because Taft-Hartley has been such a powerful force. Right. But So now when it's violated, we don't notice it. You know, somebody gets polio now. We don't make a big deal out of it because we're not in much danger from it. You know, that was wiped out when Jonas Saw came along and the other guy, uh, Savine. But uh, uh, um, this was a, this guy re-educated my ass right quick. I mean, my God. And, and that use, that you show the jurors that this is not just about two companies, one suing the other company. This is about my own well-being and my own ability to support my children. This is about the security not 
not on a jingoistic flag-waving thing. This is about the safety of, of the community, the country in which I live. And the reptile, and, the reptile can do that math, that multiplication. It's not just a physical threat only that activates the It's reptile. got nothing to do with whether it's a physical threat. Yeah. Anything, yeah. anything that threatens one's well-being. And in commercial litigation cases, money is, is one of our great survival tools. I'm not talking about excess money or greed or anything like that. I'm talking about the worry of the average person of what happens if their money dries up, what will happen to their children? It's, 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 it's what will happen to me. And you know what? They have, they have that worry on a subconscious level, even if they have no children, because the reptile doesn't know whether you have children. The reptile just treats you as if you do. And that's the Darwin operating regardless of, of the outcome. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a chemical drive that creates a characteristic. And we're trying to get at that chemical drive and, by and large, succeed. I mean, this, this, isn't, this isn't control. It's not like we're reaching in there and pushing buttons to control people. That's not what it's about. We're simply letting them see that this is exactly what survival is about. And then they take over from there. It's control in the sense that we know exactly what they're going to do once they take over. And it's one of the reasons that once you have mastered the reptile, a plaintiff's attorney in an injury case wants the very jurors who have been successfully tort reformed. Because those are the ones that we already know are the most strongly controlled by the reptile. And they are turning out to be far and away our best jurors, which is real hard for somebody like me to say, because for years, you know, we developed all kinds of methods to detect the tort reformed jurors and get rid of them. And now when, we're, when I'm working with attorneys who really know how to use the reptile, not just the ones who are beginning, but the ones who've you know, come a long way on the road to mastery, and it's hard, um, those are the jurors we want because those are the jurors who will protect themselves. And the way you protect themselves, the way you protect yourself in a civil trial is by allowing the largest verdict you can possibly logically justify. And so when you, combine, when you combine the book Rules of the Road with my David Ball on Damages and the Reptile, and David Ball on Damages, the new edition, teaches people how to combine the rules and the reptile with all the damages stuff, you've sort of got a one, two, three, four, five punch that, that, that if you really learn it, if you really you know, do the work, get the guidance, all that stuff, uh, this this whole trial law thing has turned into being a great deal of fun and a great deal of satisfaction. And I think the most important thing is just even thinking about all the clients whose lives have been changed for the better who would have gone begging without the reptile. Well said. Um, and you're you avoided one of the things that all these lawyers have in common. Did you did you go to law school? Or no, you got a, a different path, right? I'm not a lawyer. I was. Uh, uh, science and engineering, and then uh, a, a long career in professional theater, and uh, a lot of teaching of both, and then uh, 
uh, you don't want to hear the whole long story of how I got from theater to trial consulting. Uh, it was inadvertent. I was not looking for career. I didn't even know there was such a thing as trial consulting. Uh, I had a friend who had been doing it, a very dear friend who had been doing it for years, but I, I guess I never paid enough attention. And then when I started thinking, you know, started drifting in, I, I had been sitting at trials for a long time doing some research for something. It had nothing to do with being a trial consultant. I just didn't know how trials worked. And then I realized everything I know about theater will make people better lawyers. And I'm not the only one like that. There's a few other people, very few, but there are a few other good theater people in the country who've also made that same transition. so I started paying attention to what the overlaps were, but I, you know, and I did go over to the law school and got people to let me sit in on the courses that I thought I needed trial procedure and stuff like that. Probably did as much reading as anybody does in law school for a good while. Found myself surprisingly get, getting very involved in the fundamentals of tort law of, of torts. You know, the course people usually, you know, hate. Uh, we're teaching lawyers to love it because it turns out to be their best friend when it comes to the reptile because that's where the purpose of trials and the public policy that's being expressed with law and all that stuff come into play, and that's about as reptilian as you can get. So to me, it was sort of this fascinating new thing I started doing when I was, I don't know, 48, 49 years old, an utter change, and so I grabbed it. Uh, but still not knowing it was a career for a while. I was just doing it as sort of a hobby, and then all of a sudden people were saying, can you help with our case? So I did. How about that? Um, the, uh, there's all kinds of pieces that that echo so nicely uh, with l- legal training, but also with my, my previous career was as an English teacher, so there's a lot going on uh, that I see uh, connecting up. Even just the fact that when you talk about needless danger, when you talk to the jury about needless danger, you know, that's the hand formula. That's that's a principle of tort law. Exactly. But it, exactly. And it, the, the beautiful thing about this is I'm sitting here thinking I'm making this stuff up. Right. And then Keenan will hand me a book and say, look who had this, you know, in 1948. <laughs> and I'll say, stop bursting my bubble, you old fart. Uh, <laughs> but it's true. You know, it's, it's, it's not that this stuff never existed. It's just nobody ever put it together. In a way that you don't have to be a genius to do this stuff. You have to be a hard worker. Mm. Uh, Before, it had to be inspiration and genius that led you here. It's sort of like, here's why the genius is in the... I mean, we're getting into a thing now about charisma, how a lawyer becomes a good leader in a trial. And nobody has ever written one or taught one useful thing about that. That's not quite true. They've taught parts of it. But the overall package on why... Charisma has a lot to do with safety. It is totally reptilian. We feel safe with that movie star. That's why we like a Robert Redford or whoever. We feel comfortable. It's like mommy telling us stories. <coughs> why is with one movie star and not with another? I don't think anybody knows yet, but we will. But we certainly know why some lawyers have that and some don't. And we certainly know how to teach any lawyer of any intelligence how to do a lot better in that department. And once the jurors start to see you that way, then they want things to come out in your favor. They like you. Uh, they, it's not just they like you. They rely on you to help them be safer. All subconscious. Nobody's thinking about this, and you're certainly never going to talk to them about it. So the, the, the reptilian thing is really a way of framing the trial and the lawyer and the juror as we are here on a, on a campaign to do at least something 
to make our world a safer place for us and our kids without ever quite speaking those words. And, and the astonishing thing to me is that it works over and over and over. And whenever there's a failure, I'm a great failure analyst, and I want to know about it, and I look at it. I can find the failure almost always in the first five minutes of someone's opening. Not always, but almost always. They've done something that undermines their ability or takes away their ability to have, to have presented a reptilian case. Wow. Um, so it's, it's incredible stuff. I mean, it's the sort of thing that if I were... If I were young enough to go to law school, I would do just to be able to do this stuff. Because if somebody wants to have an effect on their world, uh, and a lot of young people do, even the ones who just went to law school, because well, that's sort of the next thing to do. And you know, of an English major, what the hell am I going to do for a living? I think I better go to law school. I was an English major too, by the way, so I can make fun <laughs> of English majors. Um, or let me put this with I spent some time as an English major. Okay. Uh, but even those folks, they catch on fire when they see that their lives don't need to be spent just working for somebody else. I'm not talking about what your job situation is. I'm talking about other than working for money and the welfare of your family, you are having an incredible effect on the lives of the people you're working for, like your clients. It's, it's not a business transaction anymore. It is a campaign that happens in every single case you do. And lawyers are growing back into that format now. It's, it's really exciting to see. I'm, I'm sure you know the guy who's been practicing for 20 or 25 years, and there's a certain amount of fatigue and cynicism has crept in. And all of a sudden, these guys are out there again on their horses with their white horses with their, you know, chargers and all that, and they're they're all raring to go, and they're 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 just their general satisfaction with life and their job, and God, how great it feels to do this. Totally aside from the money. And and there's a person, there are people, there's a whole community that's better off because of what I helped to do. It's it's so energizing, and it gives a purpose to life that uh, may be getting increasingly hard to find these days because there's so much cynicism. This certainly rips away the cynicism. It certainly did that for me. Right. And it has that double double power also of being quite new and revolutionary, in your word, while also reaching back to the roots yep. of what the jury and system it's progressing. is for. You're absolutely right. That's a great observation. It's, 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 it's doing both. It's going both ways, but it's also going forward because the neuroscience, I'm in a group at Duke right. of several of the major neuroscientists in the country, and, and we're setting up clinics to look at precisely legal decision-making, fact, fact, the, the finder of fact, what are the mental processes that, that are going on on the subconscious level when they make their decisions. So we carry this forward. Uh, and Duke University's got this wonderful neuroscience and decision-making center, and, and this will be part of this, is now turning into part of that. Um, 
because the progress here is going to be astonishing. And I've never been one to regret my age. As I say, I'll be 70 pretty soon. But I sort of do because by the time all this comes to real fruition, by the time we know as much about the brain as we do about how mechanical objects move, it's going to be you know two or three generations away, 60, 70 years, and I'll never get to see that. But I have to say what I see week by week over there is just astonishing, just miracles. People who are paralyzed from the neck down in another few years, we'll be able to get up and walk around because of some work that a guy named Miguel Nicolales is doing over at Duke. Uh, I mean, he'll change the world in a lot of ways because of his research. And this is all very much part of that. So, yes, this is a world-changing event, not not just what's going on in the courtroom, but what we're doing in the courtroom does have... The lawyers we get on board it, are, are signing on for learning some difficult stuff that makes them the special forces of the law profession. Hmm. Uh, and, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. It is in the sense that special forces are heroes who risk their lives all the time. Well, I don't know that a lawyer needs to risk his life to do the reptile, but the effect that he has and the abilities that he have has uh, start to rise to that same kind of level. I certainly don't mean to denigrate this sort of special forces <laughs> by comparing that to, you know, right. what we do. It's not that at all. It's the level of accomplishment, not the level of risk. Right. In fact, what we're doing is taking risk out of the game. So maybe the special forces is a bad comparison. Well, it's, and that's probably, I mean, you know, you don't, don't keep me going. I can go on about this all day long. <laughs> We've taken uh, a lot of your time. Yeah, I, no, it's not that. It's not that. I mean, I'm on a campaign here. This is making yeah. the world a better place. But I, I, I am I'm sort of on a recruiting campaign to get people to, you know, some people say, oh, I can't do that in my district, or that's too hard to learn, or I don't know about that, to just get rid of all that crap until after they learn it and master it, and then they'll see how silly all those resistance things are. And they will have acquired some really special tools. The ability for a defense attorney to properly explain beyond reasonable doubt will keep almost all your clients out of jail because there are almost no criminal cases where there is not in fact some reasonable doubt. Now that is a huge tool to make the government meet its huge burden yeah. instead of us having jails more stuffed than any other country in the world. There's a reason for that. It's not that our people are more evil than every place else in the world. And when you say that, you say properly explain that standard that burden of proof, you mean explain it to the reptile, the reptilianly framed burden of proof, yeah. so the jurors will a understand it, which they usually don't. Most attorneys don't really quite understand it either, uh, not really. Uh, they think they do, but they don't. And b to motivate jurors on a reptilian level to apply that standard. We're not motivated to, to apply the standard of beyond reasonable doubt to an accused murderer. We want to put the guy in jail. Doubts or not, we don't care. Put them away. Who knows? We need to motivate them to follow the law. In fact, that's what a large part of the reptile is about, reptilianly forcing the jurors to follow the law, and we do. 
because there, that, there's special menace in the innocent person being locked up as well. There's a there's no, an it's not got anything there. to do with that. It, it's 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 not about that at all. Okay, uh, people don't really hate innocent people being locked up as long as it's not them. <laughs> right. they, they, they think it's too bad and this isn't that terrible, but they would rather not take any chances. So if there's a possibility someone's guilty, you're not going to let your daughter go out with him, and you'd rather he was in jail. And so what we need to do with the jurors is make them see it is it is worse for them on a reptilian level to violate the law and fail to apply beyond reasonable doubt. And that's more time than I have now to explain okay. how to do that. If you have any people who are criminal lawyers or potentially, uh, if they will simply send me an email. Hold on, I dropped the phone. I get so excited about this stuff, I dropped my phone. Um, <laughs> hold on just one minute, let me reconnect something. Sure. Uh, if anybody needs it, I have a little one-page thing that's sort of it's sort of a quick introduction to how to do reasonable doubt properly, and it'll refer you to one other guide that'll help you need to get through it. So if anybody sends me an email and just says, please send the beyond reasonable doubt uh, information, I'll be glad to do it. The email is ball, B as in boy, A-L-L, at N-C, like Nancy Charlie, dot R-R dot com ball at nc.rr.com. If it happens to be somebody who's going into trial the next morning, please let me know. It's very urgent. Otherwise, uh, you know, requests like that may sit on my desk for two or three days before I act on them. But don't say it's urgent unless it really is. <laughs> very good. It's remarkable in the book also how generous you are with uh, your willingness to sort of uh, explain and, and, and get this uh, metaphor and this technique Moving, I can feel you, you, the passion is visible from you and Mr. Keenan in the book. Yeah, well, listen to his tone of voice, or, or even more mine. He's younger than me. Listen to the excitement in my voice. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's not about, I, you know, I'm an old theater brat. I never thought I was going to make much money. And, you know, I suddenly got, you know, more money than I'm ever going to be able to spend. So this is not about money for me anymore. This is about protection. This is about revenge against forces like the insurance companies and chambers of commerce that have so devastated the lives of so many people. Uh, it's about, it's about, it's about the sentimental jerk in me that says, we're going to fix things for those poor people. You know, and it's in a sense that comes out of, not in a sense on the reptilian level, that's really just about me protecting myself and my people. So, yes, it's a very important campaign. Uh, and that's why I want people to come on board. If we get enough, you know, we teach the older lawyers all the time, of course, because they're the primary ones doing the cases. But if we can get enough of the young folks, you know, excited about this stuff, excited about this area of the law, excited about the fact that, my God, there is, there is you know, how many young lawyers you talk to, they say, I want to go into public service law. But, you know, it's so hard to make a living. I don't want to spend the rest of my life just working for $20,000 a year. But I really want to do public service stuff, legal aid stuff. Well, if you work with a reptile, it is public service, and you make a good living while doing it. And it's public service in the most exciting, effective possible way that you can do with a law degree. Uh, and if we can get enough, you know, of the law students and the pre-law students enthused about this, in another generation or two, we'll be worried a lot less. Well, I won't be worried about it. I'll be gone. But we'll be worried a lot less about the strength of America. Here, let me, let me finish with this. The founders of the country were keenly aware of the danger of an overpowerful government. Uh, 
So they built into the Constitution protections against an all-powerful and overpowerful government. That was mainly what the Bill of Rights are about. But there's other things in the Constitution as well that protect us from the powers of the government. And that's remained, as we see today, a very important fiber of American, the American population. It's what makes us what we are. But there's another greater danger that was not on the radar then. There was no radar for it. And that was the power of corporations and economic forces, for not economic, but financial forces, that were more powerful, that are more powerful than the government. International corporations are not barred from doing what they want to do by the government because almost everything in government these days for about the past hundred years has been viable. The FDA is nowhere near as effective as it would like to be and as it should be because too many powerful forces have, have reduced its power and will continue to. What's not in the Constitution is a way for us to protect ourselves from the multinational big corporations whose sole interest is in mining America for every cent they can get and if they can get more by endangering us with their products, for example, they're doing that. They're doing it every day. The only force we have to that the analogy to the to the, 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 the Bill of Rights for overpowerful government is what the plaintiff's trial lawyer is doing in front of a jury. That's it. There isn't anything else. Uh, the FDA and groups like that to a certain extent. But when push comes to shove, all we really have is a cadre of lawyers who knows how to uphold the rights of the average citizen standing next to him in trial. And if we have that, just the fact that we have it makes us safer, much less when something bad happens to us. But as it's chipped away, which is what tort reform has done, undermining the ability of lawyers to get proper results for their clients, putting caps on verdicts, uh, making certain kinds of cases, taking them out of the hands of juries and putting them in the hands of government commissions that are lobbied by people who make a fortune. Uh, if we don't have a way to resist that, then the fiber of this country is going to change as surely as if you remove the 10 uh, Bill of Rights, 11 Bill of Rights, depending who you're listening to. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and that's why this stuff is so important. And that's why if, if the kids in law school, forgive my use of the word kids, but at 70 I can call them kids. Um, if the kids in law school, those who will get enthused about this, have got an incredibly good future in front of them uh, to come on board. You know, it's, it's no longer, I want to do public service, but I can't support a family by doing that kind of law, by working for legal aid or being a public defender. Now you can be every bit as effective that way just by being a regular plaintiff's lawyer in any kind of cases where public well-being is, is, is involved, which is injury and civil rights and a lot of commercial litigation like Taft-Hartley stuff I know now. <laughs> what a future lies there for them. And now I'm looking at my clock and I see that I actually now have to go do a case, so I'd better get okay. myself to work. Well, Thank you for letting me blather on like this. If anyone has any questions, you've got my email address. Don't be afraid to address questions to me. Brief ones I can answer, ones that take a long time I, I might not be able to get to. If anyone has a question that's very urgent because they're, I don't know, got a case tomorrow that they need the answer for, uh, be sure to put that right at the top of the email so I know. Uh, and I'll be glad to do what I can do.
We sure appreciate uh, th- that generosity. That's terrific. And I really thank you for your time today. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Great. And thanks, uh, thanks for doing this. And, and, and I know that my, my partner in crime, Don Keenan, uh, uh, will be really disappointed to realize that he was supposed to be with us today. And uh, something must have gotten screwed up on the calendar. So uh, he'll be sorry he missed it. And he would have been uh, he, he would have been leading the charge even stronger than me. So got, the, been got the, white hor- the white horse is going. The white horse. He, he actually gets on one of those things. I refuse. <laughs> All right. Take well, care and again. Uh, keep up the fight there. All right. We appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you two for joining us. My guest today has been David Ball, co-author with Don Keenan of Reptile, the 2009 manual of the plaintiff's revolution. My name is Jim Vonderheit. This has been New Books in Law.